Do you remember the first time you became aware of race? An early memory where you were confronted with the stark differences and inequality in our system based off where you come from and what you look like? Depending on where you grew up, you either became aware of race at an early age or you were older and it came as a surprise that not everyone was treated like you were. Each of us has a personal relationship with race, a racial identity that follows us every minute of every day, whether we're aware of it or not. That difference in experience and awareness of race influences our desire and ability to start conversations about race's role in our lives and our institutions. We're hungry for those conversations, yet we're hesitant. We don't know how to start. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with Purpose Built Communities. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Beverly Tatum from our conference in 2017 in Omaha, Nebraska. Dr. Tatum is a psychologist who has researched race and education, racial identity development in teenagers, and assimilation of black families and youth in white neighborhoods. She served from 2002 to 2015 as president of Spelman College, the oldest historically black women's liberal arts college in America. She is the author of the widely acclaimed book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. Here she's in conversation with Michelle Matthews, Senior Vice President of Purpose Built Communities, about racial identity in America's schools. Here now is Dr. Beverly Tatum. When we started talking about this session, we, um, you were telling me a little bit about some things that were going on with you since you no longer at Spelman. And that phrase you used was hungry but hesitant. Share with our audience a little bit of sort of why we named the session this and sort of how that came about. Sure. Well, let me begin by saying I'm very happy to be here. And we were talking about this session, and I was talking about my experience this spring at Stanford. I spent the spring as a distinguished visitor at Stanford, and people asked me, well, what do you do as a distinguished visitor? And I said, you visit, which is to say, (laughs) I visited a lot of classrooms. I spoke to lots of students. I spoke to faculty. I was meeting with groups over lunch, dinner, lots of eating. And... um, But what was very interesting about that experience was people wanted to talk with me because they know I write about race. And they were very eager to have a conversation about race, particularly in today's context. And yet, when I arrived at the classroom or in the session, people wanted to hear me talk, but they didn't want to talk. Mm. And so that's what I meant when I described them as audience, as an audience, as both hungry, as in hungry for the conversation, but hesitant, as in hesitant to really have to do the talking themselves. Mm. And I think that it is a very common description of many of the audiences I've had the experience with, maybe even this one, in the sense that many people know that this is an important conversation, we need to have it, and yet there's a lot of hesitation about it. Yeah. So take us back 20 years. I know you can hardly believe that it's been that long since you first wrote the book, and the name of the book, I didn't say it in the introduction, but it's certainly in the um, 
your materials is why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and other conversations about race? So take us back to 1997 and why did you feel it was important to write this book? Well, let me just say, so people may be wondering, well, why is she talking about 1997? I wrote this book originally in 1997, and the edition that um, Michelle is holding on her lap is the 20th anniversary edition that just came out a few weeks ago yeah. in September. And uh, so in 1997, I was a faculty member, I'm a psychologist, and I was teaching a course on the psychology of racism, which of course is, that course I started teaching in 1980. So by that time I'd been doing it 17 years, and I was doing a lot of workshops around the country. One of the things that I observed in my classroom was that my students, often juniors and seniors in college when they took my class, would say, you know, this course is so powerful and it's such an important topic and I can't believe that I've never had the opportunity to really learn this information until now. Why weren't we talking about this in high school, for example? How come we didn't talk about this in middle school? Why didn't I know this history? Or, you know, why was there so much silence? That was the conversation that I had with them. They were asking me. And when my research on racial identity development took me to schools where I was speaking to principals and teachers, I would ask them, why is it that you're sending me students that haven't had this conversation? Mm. You know, why don't you have these conversations in your school? And what I heard over and over again from educators was simply, we don't know how to have the conversation. Nobody had it with us. We don't know how to facilitate these things that, you know, we're afraid. And so I was doing all these workshops and I realized that it was really more than one person could do to travel around to all these different places. Maybe it was time to put what I was saying in my workshops in a book. How did you decide the title? It came to me. <laughs> um, well, the title did come to me, and you know, I was, you, you may know this story. I was on a silent retreat thinking about my life, and the book title came to me. But, but why did that title come to me? Because it was a question that was asked so often. When I arrived at those schools, sooner or later, the principal or somebody would say to me, and these were racially mixed schools, certainly um, the question would be less relevant in segregated schools, but in racially mixed schools, the first question people would often ask is, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Yeah. Now, of course we know that the black kids are not the only ones sitting together in the cafeteria, um, but that is the question that was so often asked. So I wanted to answer that question and other questions that were part of those conversations about race. Yeah, because the title of the book, everybody talks about that part of the title, but it's in other conversations around, about race that um, you are able to do and help us um, think through. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that fast forward 20 years, and I'm very interested. I got a chance to read a little bit um, of the book in preparation for this, and um, it's the 20th anniversary, but in some ways, you know, it's, it has a lot of new things. So if you've read the book before, um, you're going to get a copy, and so I really encourage you to read it again. But so why did you feel it was so important at this 20th anniversary to not only re-release the book, but then really add to it. Yeah, well when my publisher approached me about doing a 20th anniversary edition, I thought it was a great idea. I knew I was stepping down from Spelman, a great post-presidential project, and uh, 
I wasn't expecting to do as much rewriting of the book as I actually did. It truly is, in some ways, a totally new book. Same title. Um, if you've read the old version, you know that um, you will recognize chapter one, two, and three is almost identical to that, but all the other chapters have been completely rewritten, not because um, the answer to the question is different, but because there's so much new understanding that we've learned in social science over the last 20 years. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the phrase unconscious bias, but that research is not 20 years old. You know, that information, information about stereotype threads, so many ideas, um, the legal landscape has changed. But most importantly, I suppose, is also the demographic change. We live in a nation today that looks very different than it did from a population point of view 20 years ago. I um, imagine I'm not the only person in the room who was born in the 50s. And if you were born in the 50s or alive during that time, you may not have been paying attention to this statistic. I certainly wasn't back then, but the population was 90% white. Today, it, actually 2014 was the first year that fit more than half of school-age children were children of color. So that's a rapid change, a rapid difference, and yet our schools are more segregated today than they were 20 years ago and neighborhoods are as segregated. And so the work that's being done in this community around um, mixed income housing and presumably racially mixed housing will make the, uh, some of those statistics different perhaps in the future. But we know that the history of the past is still determining much of the present. So why is it so hard to talk about a race? You do this and you have an opportunity to get a lot of perspective from a lot of people all over the country. Why is it so hard? Well, I want to um, ask our audience to help me answer that question, Great. if I could. So I want to ask a couple of questions very quickly of this audience. And I'm going to ask each of you in your seat to think of your earliest race-related memory. And when you've thought of something, raise your hand, knowing that I'm not going to ask you to tell it. <laughs> okay, so what's your, have, raise your hand if you've thought of an early race-related memory. Okay, so now the question that I'd like to ask of you collectively, and you can just call out, it'll be a little chaotic, but it's okay. Um, how old you were at the time of your memory? I heard four, five, six, eight. Anybody younger than four? Raise your hand if you were younger than four. I've got a three-year-old memory, and it looks like maybe somebody else does back there. Um, anybody with their earliest mem memory later than the age of eight? Okay, and so maybe middle school, high school, college, 10, yeah. How old you were really will depend on where you grew up. That makes a big difference in terms of some of these memories. But if we were to do a graph, I think we would find many people clustered around those early elementary school years, the ages we heard at the beginning, four, five, six, seven, eight. Another question, what emotion is attached to your memory? You can call those out too. Shock, anger. anger, I heard somebody say happy, sad, sad. Anger. resentment, okay, resentment, shock, anger, sadness, I did hear happy, curious, uh, curious. Um, confusion, anybody got confusion? 
fear, no fear, we've got a couple of fears, um, embarrassment. These are the words that I often hear when I ask, um, sometimes guilt, uh, but often there are words like the ones we just heard, anger, fear, confusion, embarrassment, shock, resentment. Um, we also sometimes hear happy. Love is a word sometimes used, curious. Um, certainly love, happy are positive words, maybe in the context of a friendship or a caring relationship. Curious is kind of a neutral word, but most of those other words are words that have negative feeling attached. I mean, most of us don't want to feel angry or resentment or embarrassed or shocked or confused. And now the question I'd like to ask, and you can do this by raising your hand. Raise your hand if you discussed your experience with a caring adult, either a teacher or a parent, at the time it occurred. Okay, look around. Do you see there's a few hands up? Okay, now um, put your hands down, thank you. Raise your hand if you did not talk to anyone about your experience. I think if you look around, you'll see that there are many more did nots than dids, and this is always the case. I have never been in an audience where that wasn't true. And so let's go back to the fact that we're talking about four, five, and six-year-olds. And if you know four, five, and six-year-olds, they are pretty candid. They don't filter much, right? And so if you were four, five, or six in that early age group, and you had an unpleasant experience that was confusing or troubling in some way, and yet you didn't talk to anybody about it, even though most four, five, six-year-olds are pretty candid, we have to ask the question, why not? That's counterintuitive, right? So why not? Why do you think it is the case that so many people didn't have that conversation? Fear. I heard fear. I heard somebody say fear. Awkward. Awkward. Shame. shame. So just those first three words, fear, awkward, shame. How is it that a four, five, or six-year-old would already be afraid, awkward, or ashamed of this conversation? And I have to say that it lets us know, just this data right here, lets us know that most people have learned at an early age that you're not supposed to talk about race or things related to race. That you, um, if you notice it, you're not supposed to comment on it. If you have experienced racism you're not, or witnessed it, you're not supposed to talk about it. And I think we get those messages at a very early age. Some people um, get those messages as in, this is a difficult thing that's impacting you, as in you're the target of the racism, and who are you to talk to about it? Some people get that message, I'm witnessing it and I'm not supposed to comment on it. Whether you're on the receiving end or the witnessing end, the message is the same, keep quiet. And so imagine, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to tell you, I'm 63 years old. Let's imagine your earliest memories at three. That's 60 years, perhaps, of being in experiences or having experiences where the message is don't talk about it. So we are, it's not a surprise mm -hmm. that when, you know, speaking as a psychologist in the room, when you have a lot of experience hearing that you're not, or, or it's not always being told directly, sometimes it's indirectly, sometimes it's shh, uh, you know, signaling to young children that they're not supposed to comment on these things. 
repeated over and over and over again, it's not surprising that as adults, we have this um, debilitating silence. Sure, sure. When I was preparing for this book, I, as we all know, purpose-built staff many times are traveling to our network members, and I was on a plane, and I was reading the book, and um, an elder white man, he was sitting next to me, and he said, so why do that? And I have used this story in the book years and years and years. It was in your first book, and it's a story about a I think she's in high school. Eighth grade. Eighth grade, okay. So it's time for the prom. And she's in eighth grade, and she's speaking with her favorite teacher, as I remember the story, who is white. And she, the, the teacher says, are you excited about going to the prom? And she says, no, I, I don't, I'm not going. I'm not interested in going. And the teacher says, oh, sure you are. I know. You like to dance. You all like to dance. I know you people like to you dance. You people like to dance. Even more grating. You people like to dance. And she walks away. This is one of her favorite teachers. And she walks away hurt. Kind of some of the things that you're talking about in that experience. And she goes to her white friend, as I, again, am remembering in the book. And, you know, sort of, can you believe that I was sharing this and my teacher said this? And her friend, who is her good friend, not meaning any harm, says, you're making basically sort of too much of this, and the teacher didn't mean anything. And at that moment, that's why. I, I, to me, this is such a great example of why black kids sit together in the cafeteria. Because what she was looking for was to be affirmed that while it's not terrible, and the teacher may not be racist, and may never have said anything else, she wanted to be affirmed. And it's in the cafeteria that, and other places that we are often affirmed. So talk to us a little bit of sort of that. I know you do a lot of work around racial identity. And yes. share with the audience a little bit about the importance of that. Because as you know, we are trying to create a cradle to college pipeline. And education and teachers, it's very important to understand Absolutely. some of these concepts. Absolutely. Well, let me just start out by talking about identity. We have on the screen this uh, sentence, it's an empty sentence, it says, I am. And if I were to ask each of you to take 60 seconds to fill in the blank, I am, think about, we're not gonna actually do this, but I'm, but I'm gonna ask you to just think about what would you say, if somebody asked you to describe yourself, I am, fill in the blank, what would you say? You might say, I'm hungry. <laughs> you might say, I am 63. You might say, I am a purpose-built network member. There are lots of things that you could say about yourself. The question is, of all the possible things, what might you include on that list? I used to ask psychology students, freshmen, first year students in my intro psychology class, to do this on the first day of class. And what was always interesting was, along with things like I'm 18, I'm from Massachusetts, I am, you know, fill in the blank, uh, they would often include descriptions of group membership. I am black, I'm Puerto Rican, I am Jewish, I am a lesbian, I am fill in the blanks. But in each of these categories, it was very common for students of color to say, I am black, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm Asian American. Rarely would you have anybody write, I am white, I am European American. That was usually not mentioned. 
I taught for many years at a co-ed institution called Westfield State University in Massachusetts. The women would write, I am female. The men didn't write, I am male. The, um, I mentioned I am Jewish. It was unusual for someone to write, I am Protestant. They might write, I am Christian, if someone was highly identified with that, but you know, sort of denominational affiliations didn't show up. You might have a student who was brave enough to write down, I'm lesbian, or I'm gay, or I'm transgender, but I can't remember ever having a student write, I am heterosexual. Though I think it's safe to say most of them were, right? So the point here is that there are some identities that are more salient for us than others. And typically, if you, are, if you have an identity in which you are targeted by that identity, as a woman targeted by sexism, as a person of color targeted by racism, you're much more likely to be tuned into that dimension of your multiple identities, we all have multiple identities, um, than if you are um, in the dominant group. And so one of the things, the first thing to say is that we all have, if we're talking about racial identity, everybody has a racial identity. Not everybody is thinking about their racial identity, right? If you are a white person living in a largely white community, working in a largely white setting, going to a largely white school, you might not think about being white at all. It might not be part of your consciousness. But if you're one of a handful of black kids in that school, I can guarantee that child is thinking about what does it mean to be black in this environment, that that dimension of identity is important. If you are a white person working in a largely black community, I bet you're thinking about your whiteness uh, when you walk into those meetings and are one of few white people in the room. So that those identities that are um, salient to us are the ones we focus on. And when I write about racial identity, when I talk about that, what I'm talking about is a process, a developmental process, by which people come to understand what that particular identity means in the context of a race-conscious society. I've heard you talk about, sort of following up on that, uh, the idea of dominant and support subordinate. Talk a little bit more about that, because I think that that also gives us context as we're working in our neighborhoods and we're thinking about how we show up. Yes. Well, one of the things that I think is really important to say about dominant and subordinate categories, regardless of whether you're talking about gender or sexual orientation or race or socioeconomic status, um, whatever the identity category is, it's, I think, an accurate statement to say that subordinates always know more about the dominants than the dominants know about the subordinates. I'm going to repeat that. <laughs> subordinates always know more about the dominants than the dominants know about the subordinates. And, you, and there are lots of reasons why that would be true. For one thing, that if someone has power over you, you better understand who they are and how they operate in order to survive when interacting with them, right? But to use a, just a, a common example, you know, if you are... Um, working as a, if you're a black woman working as a domestic in someone's home, you know all about them. You know what's in their closets, you know what's, you know, you know everything about how their lives are organized. They may not know anything about how your life is organized outside of that workplace. Um, may have never been to your house, may never have been to your neighborhood, don't know anything about your children or the school they go to. And so when we think about crossing lines of difference, the first thing, if you're in a dominant category, 
is that you have to be, uh, have some humility about the fact that you don't know very much. Often, I think one of the characteristics of being dominant is the um, presumption that you know a lot. Right, you know that that's part of the messaging uh, that people get. If you're a do if you're in a dominant category, part of the messaging is you're dominant because you know a lot, um, or because you're smart, or you know, and and so a certain kind of humility is necessary. I'm sure everyone in this audience understands that, but yeah. certainly, yeah, it's nice to um, sometimes be reminded. Right, we we do this work every day, and we are thinking about neighborhoods and the, the things that we want to do, but it's always good to remember whoever you are is sort of that humility of we don't know. I'm going to use an example. It's perhaps a bad example, but it just came to me. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about just this moment, I was thinking about our current president and Puerto Rico, and I was thinking about a tweet in which he said that people should go online and sign up for FEMA. And, and the ridiculous of that, I mean, because of course the conditions on the ground is that you don't have power and no internet. And so how can you go online and sign up for FEMA? Um, but, 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 you know, there's sort of a lack of humility in that statement. You know, I understand what their situation is, here's what you should do. Yeah. You know, and that's perhaps an exaggerated situation, but we could all imagine walking into a setting where one might say, what would I do in this situation? Well, then I, if, I, if it were me, I'd go online and sign up for FEMA. That's what you should do, right? Yeah. Well, it doesn't always translate in that yeah. way. Uh, and that's a great segue because, you know, this group <laughs> is um, very focused on uh, mixed income housing. Yes. And I was struck in your book that this time it feels like you spent a little bit more time sharing about the history of how we got here. And I know many in the audience sort of understand a lot of that policy, but why was that important in the context of this book to, to share? Yeah, well thank you. It, this, this book is, uh, if you've seen the earlier version, you'll notice, well the first thing you'll notice is this book is, a, is fatter. <laughs> it's a longer book by about 100 plus pages and, and there is more history in it. Part of that has to do with the fact that when people read the first version, they would ask me questions that let me know they didn't know much history, right? Because if you did, you wouldn't ask those questions. But the, um, I think it's really important for us to understand how we got to where we are in order to, one, not repeat the same mistakes, and two, to be thinking strategically about how to fix them. I want to use an example which is actually from outside the U.S. context. But I had the opportunity uh, a number of years ago to visit South Africa. It was actually, it was shortly after it was around the time that the book was written the first time. It was in the late 90s. It was shortly after the end of apartheid in South Africa. And I was giving a workshop on school desegregation uh, based on the U.S. experience. We were sharing across uh, cultural experiences with the South Africans who were engaged in this. And I was having a conversation with a white teacher who was a young woman in her 20s. And she was talking about the fact that when she was growing up, she asked her father why did the black people live in these townships, which if you know anything about them, you know, really, uh, did, you know, very impoverished conditions. And her father, who was a ranch owner and the people worked on his ranch, said they lived there because that's how they wanted to live. Which, of course, 
you know, was such a ridiculous statement. It didn't tell her anything about the fact that people were removed from the land, were confined by law in these townships, didn't have access to come out, all of that. But that was her understanding, and so if that's your understanding, then how you would choose to solve that fix that problem, you might say, well, there's nothing to be done. They like it that way, right? You know? And I've heard similar kinds of conversations in the US, and maybe some of you have. And so I think it's very important for people to know how is it that our neighborhoods got as segregated as they are? How is it, you know, we heard yesterday about the decision to put a highway 75 north in the middle of a community. You know, I, I think it's safe to assume that highway would never have been placed in the middle of a affluent white community. The, um, if you think about how housing policy was formed, particularly after, the, after World War II, I think it's, you know, we are seeing the consequences of this all around the nation. But if you're wondering what am I talking about, you know, after World War II, the GI Bill promised these low interest loans, uh, housing loans, to veterans, and those Every veteran, theoretically, was eligible for these loans, except in practice that wasn't the case because the loans were specifically targeted for new construction in what was then new suburban communities. Those new suburban communities, many of them were being built with very explicit racial covenants so that black people were not allowed to purchase them. So if you're a, v, uh, a vet, let's say you're a black vet and you want a loan, you can't get one for older housing. You can only get it for new housing, but you can't buy in the new housing neighborhoods. And that's governmental policy on both ends. One is the, um, the government was subsidizing the development of those racially exclusive suburbs. The government was also establishing what we now call redlining, and it was in fact, you know, drawing green lines around some neighborhoods, the new, white con the new construction, white neighborhoods, blue lines around other neighborhoods, older but still all white, yellow lines around neighborhoods that were transitioning or at risk of transitioning, and red lines around neighborhoods that were all black. And if your neighborhood has a red line around it, you can't get a loan. So all, um, you can't get a loan to buy, you can't get a loan to rehab, you can't get a loan to do any of those things. And that was official government policy um, in the late 40s and into the 50s. And so people were confined in areas that they couldn't invest in because they couldn't get loans and couldn't accumulate housing equity, which then helps send your kids to college, which helps, which impacts intergenerational wealth. And that's just one example. Sure. Um, we could also talk about policies around um, schooling. You get out, you know, GI Bill allows you to go to school, but you can't go to, uh, you know, you can get out, but can you go to schools that are segregated? You cannot. I tell the story of my dad, who was a veteran of that era, and, um, went, he graduated from Howard. He was able to go to college using his GI Bill at Howard University, but Howard was not, you know, not everyone can go to Howard, right? It's a small, relatively small school relative to the total population. Sure. And then, um, after getting his uh, undergraduate degree and earning a master's degree in art um, at uh, University of Iowa, he was teaching at Florida A&M, which is a 
historically black college, for those of you who don't know, in Tallahassee, and wanted to get his doctorate as a professor, needing his doctorate to advance, and uh, could have gone to Florida State University because they offered the program that they had, that he was interested in um, at Florida State, but in 1954, even though it was after Brown versus Board of Education, Florida State was still segregated. And so the state of Florida, in order to meet the law of providing access, did so by paying his transportation to Pennsylvania. He went to school at Penn State. And he, my dad would always tell me that, um, you know, the Florida didn't pay his tuition, but they paid his transportation. And so, uh, you know, paid his train ticket for him to get to Pennsylvania. My point being, though, that, you know, that his life would have been much easier, certainly, if he'd been able to, you know, take a bus across town sure. than a train to, you know, state, a state several states away. When he finished his degree in 1957, um, my parents made the decision, as a lot of African Americans did, to leave the South, and I grew up in Massachusetts, where he became the first African American professor at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. But the point here is, is that all of those policy decisions, those were policy decisions. Those were federal, state, local policies that impacted people's ability to access education, access housing, ultimately access employment. And those policies and practices, even to the extent that they've been changed, are still resonating in terms of the way neighborhoods look today. I've heard you talk about, um, so in working with Dr. Tatum over the years, she has a gift of words and a gift of being able to uh, create analogies that uh, really sort of sear in my brain some of the concepts that she talks about. And so I've heard you talk about this whole issue and thinking about it like smog. Yes. Talk to our audience a little bit about smog and how this relates. I think this is a really important concept, actually, because particularly as I think about the work that all of you are doing, um, because if you're working across lines of difference, which of course you all are, you know, one of the, particularly when we're dealing with issues of race, many people worry about offending someone. Will I say something that will be understood as, quote, racist? Will I say something that will reveal prejudice? Will I, you know, somehow put my foot in it or, you know, make things worse? And what I like to tell my students and what I write in the book is that we all get misinformation about people different from ourselves. We all get misinformation about people like ourselves, right? The fact that you're a member of a particular group doesn't mean speaking for myself, you know, as a black woman doesn't mean I haven't been exposed to stereotypes about black women or about black men or, you know, we all are exposed to these stereotypes. We've all been exposed to distorted information. And we are also, how we think about the world is also shaped by what we don't learn, um, by the omitted information. So it's so pervasive, I like to describe it as like breathing smog. You know, if you walk outside today, I don't know how the air in Omaha rates against the air in Atlanta, but my guess is there's some smog. And that wherever you live, some places are smoggier than others, but wherever you live, you are going to be a smog breather. Nobody wants to describe themselves. I can guarantee that sentence, I am. Nobody wrote, I am a smog breather. <laughs> But we all are. And to the extent that we're all breathing in the smog of um, misinformation, 
the smog of stereotypes, the, you know, the smog of the jokes we hear people tell, the smog of the language we heard people using as we grew up, the smog of the um, inaccurate information that people share. We are likely, if you breathe it in, sooner or later you're going to breathe some out. And so the issue should not be, am I ever going to breathe out some smog? You will. It's guaranteed. But the question is not that. The question is, what are we doing to clean up the air? You know, how are we working to try to improve the situation? Yeah, I want to... It won't um, be perfect. I want to um, read just a couple of um, things out of... Uh, your book, one was written by a student mm -hmm. who was a white woman, and I think it sort of echoes this, and I'm reading um, these two passages as a prelude to um, a question of how do you help people have conversations. So the first um, passage that I will read is, uh, as I said, from this uh, white woman in your, your class. She was in her late 30s. And she wrote this about her fears when trying to speak honestly about her understanding of racism. And she says, fear requires us to be honest with not only others, but with ourselves. Often, this much honesty is difficult for many of us, for it would permit our insecurities and ignorance to surface, thus opening the floodgates for our vulnerabilities. This position is difficult for most of us when we are in the company of entrusted friends and family. I can imagine fear heightening when we are in company of those we hardly know. Hence, rather than publicly admit our weaknesses, we remain silent. And then you have a passage from an Asian uh, American that was also in your class about the difficulty of speaking. And I thought that this was really um, also key because I think a lot of times people feel as though if you are a person of color or you're in that subordinate group, it is easy for you to sort of be vocal and to be able to share, um, share things. So this woman writes, the process of talking about this issue is not easy. We people of color can't always make it easier for white people to talk about race relations because sometimes they need to break away from that familiar and safe ground of being neutral or silent. I understand that some are trying, but sometimes they need to take bigger steps and more risk. As an Asian in America, I am always taking risks when I share my experiences of racism. However, the dominant culture expects it of me. They think I like talking about how my parents were laughed at at work or how my older sister is forced to take birth control pills because she's on welfare. Even though I'm embarrassed and sometimes get too emotional about these issues, I talk about them because I want to be honest about how I feel. So I have um, a, a white friend who is um, doing a lot of reading and sort of with what's happening in the environment. What advice would you give to her um, when she wants to enter into these conversations in a way that even if she's fearful, she's able to enter in? Well, I think that um, it's important as the, both of them, actually both the student, both the white student and the Asian student talked about taking risks, right? And I think we all have to be willing to risk some discomfort in order to really engage in meaningful dialogue. I write a lot in the book about the importance of dialogue and I do think that it makes a difference. However, I think it's also important to say that dialogue is not a one-shot experience, right? Sometimes people will bring folks together for 
a quote conversation, but it's time limited and it's a one-time event. And usually that's just enough to make people uncomfortable, as opposed to enough to really work through anything, right? So that in order, one of the beauty, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about my class was that it was 15 weeks, right? And so there was a guarantee that We'd have a hard conversation this week, but next week we'll all be back and do it again. And you know, over time, it would eventually get easier. And while not everybody's going to sign up for a class for 15 weeks, people can sign up to say, you know, for the next four weeks, we're going to meet and talk about this, or we're going to make a commitment to have um, a book club. We're going to read something together and talk about it, which is actually a great way to do it because it gives structure um, to the conversation. But there are resources that are available from organizations like what used to be called Study Circles Now. I think it's called Democracy Now or something like that. But the um, but there are organizations that provide uh, conversation guides that can be helpful. But the commitment to coming back even if it's, you know, we're going to talk today, and even if I've said something that offends you or you said something that offends me, if we've made a commitment to come back the following week, it gives time for reflection and re-engagement. And I think that that's really um, a critical component, that opportunity to go away, think about it, and come back. I have another analogy that I'm going to share here, which is to say conversations about race are kind of like antibiotics which is to say they work well if you take the whole dose. <laughs> but they, what happens if you don't take the whole dose, right? The illness comes back and it comes back worse. And I actually think that that's where we are as a society right now. People will say we talk about it all the time. Actually not. We have had some conversations, but we've never taken the whole dose. And that's why, um, you know, the partial conversations are enough to raise people's anxiety and what do people do when they have high anxiety they either lash out or they avoid and so and we see evidence of both things happening a lot of lashing out and a lot of avoidance yeah and i think that's uh, again very powerful and very important for the work that we do is thinking that it is not a one-time thing it is not just we have the conversation and then we don't talk about it anymore, but we have to figure out how we continue to have a, the conversation. And many of our network members are spending time thinking about those things and having those conversations. One of the things that I think is really important, and this is particularly for the white people in the audience, you know, I know that because I've had all this experience teaching about racism, I know that one of the reasons white people don't like to talk about it is because it makes them feel bad you know, that there's this sense of guilt or sometimes shame or embarrassment, even if it's not your history, right? Even if you arrived here from someplace else yesterday, the idea that this has been happening and that white people that you might be connected to have somehow participated in it, or you yourself have been participating in it, is hard for people to here. Mm. And so if we don't talk about it, I don't have to think about it and, you know, and one of those ideas that goes along with this is the idea of privilege, right? Um, I am sure many people in this audience have heard the phrase white privilege or male privilege or white male privilege or, you know, uh, white male heterosexual privilege, you know, that, or class privilege. I mean, privilege 
is a fact. It's not an insult. You know, and sometimes when someone is told they have privilege, they respond in a very defensive way because it makes it sound like, you know, if someone said to me, um, you've got heterosexual privilege, I identify as heterosexual, or I grew up in a middle class family, you have class privilege. Those things are true, those are true statements. It's not that I'm a bad person or somehow have been misusing other people or abusing other people because privilege is part of my experience, but, but if you have it, you have it. It's just a fact. And so um, I think it's important for people to own it and then figure out how to leverage it. If you've got it, you can use it to make a difference. And of course, the people in this room are doing that hard work in communities where the privilege of social networks, the privilege of access to capital, the privilege of resources um, helps you to do that work, obviously. But I find that particularly in this political climate, the idea that someone has, quote, privilege is somehow uh, being talked about as though this is a ridiculous concept. You know, it's not ridiculous, it's real. Uh, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, it just means that's part of your life experience that you should acknowledge. You know, we all have to roll up our sleeves and our sphere of influence and use it. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Beverly Tatum at the Purpose Built Community's annual conference in Omaha in 2017. Racial identity is not something we can hide from, and we can't hide from conversations about race and racism either. Overriding a lifetime of messages and experiences in favor of inquiry, of listening, of empathy is a conscious choice and a challenging one, but a challenge that each of us needs to take head on. The good thing is, there are people like Dr. Tatum who've written and spoken about how to have conversations about race. And there are also helpful resources on PurposeBuiltCommunities.org and a community of others around the country working towards racial equity. Join the conversation by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank Dr. Beverly Tatum for her work and for sharing it with us. In our next episode, we'll hear from Dr. Todd Clear, a distinguished professor of criminology at Rutgers University. So if I said to you, we're gonna do an experiment. We're gonna increase by eight times the number of fellow citizens we put in prison. We're gonna increase by five times the rate that we put them in prison. What do you think? You would say this, we can't afford that. That's gonna be really wildly expensive. I said, well, just figure we'll get the money somehow. What do you think? Well, crime rate's gonna go down. Well, here's what we got. We have afforded it by not investing in schools, by not investing in roads, uh, by uh, reducing the amount of money we spend on, on healthcare, uh, and we have the same crime rate than when we started. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org slash podcasts, where you'll find more information on the Purpose Built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy. Our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. 
Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community. Community.